Dana Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Hey, uh, this is Michael Salamon. The primaries of 2016, working with activists and uh, organizers and independent journalists and developing all sorts of different online tools that they uh, that we wanted. But one of the big things, our conversation kept coming back to community and needing a safe space where activists aren't spied on or our posts aren't moderated by these corporations. News stories uh, from independent journalists have the same caliber of weight in the news stream as the big corporate media. Um, and censorship on the major social networks was becoming a big issue. So we went to work trying to combine some of the tools we'd already built for people into a network, a social network. And what we came up with was a place where we're not marketing your data, we're not playing psychological tests with your newsfeed, it's straightforward and the order it was intended to be um, and uh, we highlight independent journalism um, from the vetted sources that, that we like and invite you to post your favorites uh, you can live stream you can blog you can write articles you can uh, post your podcast mp3 you can do all the things you can do just about everywhere and hopefully some other unique things that you'll find too there's a lot packed into it Michael Solomon, and we're going to talk about his new platform, Media Revolt, that has been created for leftists to organize on, to engage in social media, uh, various things, video, sharing articles, etc. And it's something that we all need to get on. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Tina. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you created this great platform, Media Revolt, and um, walk us through the platform a little bit and tell us a little bit about why you created it and how folks can sign up and get involved. Back in 2016, we were offering kind of a web support, tech support, meeting online solutions for a lot of different independent broadcasters and bloggers out there. Um, and as we were developing solutions for their website, we started coming up with different tools that we thought this would be great for organizing. But then in, in 2016, we saw a lot of Bernie groups getting attacked and shut down by troll armies on Facebook. We saw our friends in Black Lives Matter being spied on by the authorities on Facebook. And it kind of became a priority, well, we're going to pivot from helping individuals and try and build a larger platform because we need a safe space to organize on. So we started combining the different tools we've been building for individuals into a platform that uh, is really, we keep saying it's a more socialist social network. It's completely user-run and funded. Um, we discussed the issues in our forums. Uh, the privacy mm -hmm. policy was all crafted by the members. But it's a place that you can organize you know, groups just like on Facebook or other like social networks, private groups, and any of your data that is meant to be private is so. It's done in a way that even our administrators could never really look at your chats or, or who's in your group or what like that. Um, but you can also post publicly, you can publish your blog, you can live stream, um, there's fun stuff like that, like mm -hmm. at the music service. Um, 
but the whole concept really is that uh, you can come on to do the results, not worry about crying eyes, and that uh, you don't have the data tracking. You don't have any trackers. Um, they're not being recorded unless you know somebody shares a, a YouTube video. The Google trackers might still be there, and we often mm -hmm. post ways that we can block that as well. But yeah, it's it's not a business. Nobody's trying to make a buck off of anybody. In fact, right. we're yet to be in the black, but the, the users pitch in uh, what they can to keep it going, and we just had our first year of building and developing uh, as this open community, and it seems to be going pretty well, um, other than we don't have money for marketing, so we could use more people to come join in the fun, but Maybe that's a good thing, yeah. too, because we also don't have Trump and Hillary trolls giving us just a hard time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a breath of fresh air. I, You know, it's true. You don't have your feed all cluttered with all these Clintonites and Trumpers yelling at you all day. Um, I like that you're bringing up this idea of organizing. So it, if you, for folks that haven't been on the site, it does sort of function like a Twitter does where you have a feed and you have a home page and you can post links and what have you. But it has this extra layer that you're discussing where you could create private groups that um, you can organize on. And the problem if you're trying to do the same thing on Facebook is that you don't have the same level of privacy. So uh, this is a big deal. I think so. It's uh, a priority for us that you would be able to have a closed group and no one would know what you're doing. Even on our administrative team, nobody could really get into that and see what you're doing, who your members are. Uh, and then we have things like a, a live newswire that's constantly grabbing indie media headlines on the hour. Um, so people are getting good information. We're not joining the fake news bandwagon of banning news sources. We're grabbing news sources as a community and, and encouraging independent media. Um, so there's different layers of organizing. There's organizing for information and, and organizing for your community. A private group out there that is street artists that try and share messaging so they're doing it on a national scale. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's up to how people want to use it. That's the beauty of any network that's community built. But, um, but there's different people using it in, in different ways, whether it's just networking in a general traditional social media sense or, or digging their heels in deeper in activism. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's important. Um, we were talking before uh, we we started the we were chatting before the podcast, and one of the things we're talking about was how YouTube is such a problem for progressives now because this is a corporation. It's Google. It's not it's not the independent company it used to be, and um, they've not only demonetized a lot of the folks that were posting on there, they've actually terminated accounts. And I really feel like um, we need to have some sort of a space separate from YouTube because any day now they can just say to somebody, we don't want you on here anymore and terminate the account, and then that's that. You're done. And you really don't have any communication with them. There's no recourse. Um, so, And I know that that takes a ton of bandwidth, server space, all that kind of stuff, but there just doesn't seem to be um, anyone stepping into that space. So now one of the things you're doing is allowing for shorter live broadcasts. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Our live stream system is fairly simple to use. Um, we're still 
developing it better for mobile, but it works in a lot of mobile browsers and works great on the desktop version or on a tablet version, um, accessing the camera. But you can live stream really as long as you, you want, but we really only have the ability and bandwidth to do the first 10 minutes that it records it for future viewing. Um, oh, okay, I understand. If the community grows and, and donors go, we can keep investing in that infrastructure. But at this right. point, we're just doing 10-minute uh, recording. But it's, uh, you know, Google is a Goliath, and yeah. they're government contractors, so they're not going to be friendly to the true left. Um, mm -hmm. At best, they might be friendly to centrists. But they, uh, they're, they're part of really what organizations like ours or groups like ours are not going to fit well into. Um, so we are trying to come up with different solutions. Uh, we didn't do a search engine because DuckDuckGo does that and does it well. Um, and there's some other services that we didn't try to do, but, but we did take on things like uh, a book club. You can post PDFs and share. You can put your podcast up. And the live streaming yeah. was a big part of that because uh, – even if you're not trying to make a buck, it's hard to get your messaging out and have a place that you can post that. Great. Um, so I'm hoping folks like will check that out and start to use it more. I'd like to, because we're going into 2018 now, and I'd like to have, um, we need to get everybody together and all of our allyship and all of our uh, coalition building. We need to get everybody together to work towards what, what's coming up in 2018 and 2020, obviously. And part of that is being able to organize effectively and I don't know that – I agree with you. I don't know that Twitter, Google, uh, Facebook, I don't think that these are the outlets that are going to be friendly towards the changes we want to make. But we do want to be right. that safe space where we can gather. Ours isn't Twitter where you're going to fight with fascists online all day. Ours is a place where you're going to meet with like-minded people and strategize or share information that, as a community, we need to all be on the same page with. Um, but, yeah. but, again, you can – Easily, with just a couple of clicks, post your Facebook, post your Twitter. We even have a feature where you can schedule posts, and it'll go to your other social media. Um, so we want to be inclusive, but you're still operating in the, the larger social world, but ours is a, is a tribal community that you can feel safe in. Absolutely, and I think that's correct, too. I'm not advocating anybody get rid of their Twitter. I'm going to keep mine. <laughs> But I like the idea that if I want to retreat from all the crap that I get on Twitter, um, all the trolling, et cetera, that there's this great safe space. Um, so, yeah, so, folks, if you're listening and you're not on Media Revolt yet, please get on the site, um, send me friend requests, send Michael friend requests, and we'll all get together and figure out how, how we proceed with making our allyship stronger. Um, you, I wanted to ask you about uh, – Christian socialism, so you're trying to build a church based on the ideas of Christian socialism, um, which I think is fantastic as well. So tell us a little bit about what that means philosophically. Well, um, so I achieved my, uh, an honorary doctorate of divinity and uh, am a reverend. not something I practice other than I've done a handful well, more than a handful. I've done quite a few weddings and a handful of funerals and, and these types of things. But I am a student of a movement in the in the 60s, uh, which was called Christian Socialism in Europe. But here in the States, it really 
was embodied by like Dr. King and prominent. Well, I don't know about the summer. I guess I should begin with what we have in store for the spring. I feel that we are in the midst of the most critical period in our nation, and the economic problem is probably the most serious problem confronting the Negro community. And I might say the most serious problem confronting poor people generally. And I don't want to be narrow about this, talking only about the black poor in our country, because I must be concerned about Puerto Ricans who are poor, Mexican-Americans, American Indians, and Appalachian whites. And we are confronting a major depression uh, in the poor community. And time has come to bring to bear the power of the direct action, the nonviolent direct action movement, on the basic economic conditions that we face all over the country. Nonviolence has been a tremendous force in grappling with the social problem of legal segregation and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding that system. And of course, it has been a major force in grappling with the political problem of the denial of the right to vote. But in winning victories like the Civil Rights Bill of 64 and the Voting Rights Bill of 1965 around uh, the issue of segregation and voting rights, we discovered that uh, these uh, legislative strides uh, did very little to improve the lot of the millions of Negroes in the ghettos of the North and in the nation generally. In other words, it did very little to penetrate the lower depths of Negro deprivation uh, in communities all over. Well, to look at the Gospels of the Bible, the, the first-hand accounts of Christ, and take just what he says, not what the apostles add in, not what the Old Testament says, but what Christ says into account. And it is a narrative of service to others and a strong backbone of what a lot of us who identify as democratic socialists or even just straight-up socialists um, look to, that we need to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves to be a good society. Um, and to level the playing field. But what Christian socialism was based on in the 60s was that if somebody is suffering injustice, you stand up for them. If somebody is hungry, you feed them. If somebody needs a roof, you put a roof over them. Um, this is what Christ commands throughout the Gospels, and ultimately uh, what he paid for his life with was, was actually for feeding people and leaving boundaries, uh, sort of <laughs> like what we're talking on a, a greater scale with, with immigrants right now, is he had gone into nations you weren't supposed to help people and helped people and fed them, um, and thus was building a large phone. So Christian socialism, in a practical application today in the church that we'd like to see built, uh, we'll, we'll try and start one location with hopes of of others picking up and putting one in their community would be very much based around um, food security, helping people in the community make sure that they have meals, and developing 
uh, charitable organizations to help in, in other ways to uplift those in poverty and um, to, to give legal aid to those facing injustice. Uh, it's lofty and there's a whole lot of legal organization and cost to get there, but we're, we're starting the process and, and walking down the road. We've got uh, a land for, for building a church and we're slowly taking the steps to get there. I don't know how long, but we, uh, we're going to call Church of Solidarity, and um, it will be solidaritychurch.org once we have uh, all the ducks in a row. That's fantastic. I love the notion of the solidarity. And, in fact, it reminds me of the famous Gandhi quote, I love your Christ, but I dislike your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And it seems to me what you're doing is actually mirroring, mirroring more what Christ's teachings are about than what we see coming out of you know, like the evangelical movements and some of the other things we've seen in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, what is your opinion of the Pope when he talks about a moral economy? Because it seems to me there might be some crossover there. Excited uh, to be here in the Vatican, uh, to have the opportunity to say a few words uh, to the academy about the need for a moral economy. In my country and around the world, we are seeing a handful of very, very wealthy people become wealthier, while most people are becoming poor. In fact, the top 1% of people on this planet now own more wealth than the bottom 99%. That, to me, is unacceptable. It is unsustainable. It is immoral, and together we have got to change that. And I have been enormously impressed by Pope Francis speaking out and his visionary views about creating a moral economy, an economy that works for all people, not just the people on top. And what he has said over and over again, we cannot allow the market just to do what the market does. That's not acceptable. We have got to ingrain moral principles into our economy. And there is no area where that is clearer than in the area of climate change. The greed of the fossil fuel industry is literally destroying our planet. The scientists are virtually unanimous. Climate change is real, and it is caused by human activity. It is already causing devastating problems all over this planet. And whether the fossil fuel industry likes it or not, we have got to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. And what Pope Francis has told us over and over again is we have the wealth to do that. We have the technology to do that. We have the know-how to do that. But we have got to confront is the greed of people who are so much more concerned about their own billions than the future of the children and the future of our planet. So I am just so excited to be here, so proud to be here with other like-minded people who are trying to do our best to create a moral uh, economy. Well, I, I love Pope Frank when he's talking about economic issues, um, maybe not some of the other stuff, but 
the yeah. moral autonomy, <laughs> I believe, is a big part of the actual Christ part of the Gospels. I mean, the only mm-hmm. time you see, you, you hear these evangelicals making Christ into like a Rambo-type figure, but the only time yeah. he ever showed some sort of violence towards others was towards bankers. Um, mm-hmm. Because right. and, and there are endless times that he talks about that if you have excess, you are expected to to give to others. So the idea of putting it into a, a moral economy that we make sure that uh, there's not this grotesque amount of profit for like Peter Thiel on Amazon, mm-hmm. but a balance. You can do commerce. You can have wealth. You can own property. I don't think even uh, especially not democratic socialists and, and most Christian socialists, maybe some extreme socialists are saying we need to redistribute property. But all we're really saying is we need to balance the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Pope Frank is talking about is that in these instances where we have extreme poverty and ludicrous wealth, wealth that it would take many lifetimes to spend, these billionaires are going into space on their own. I mean, who would have fathomed that individuals would be so wealthy that they can just do that on a whim, yet almost half the American population is living in below poverty line right now. There's got to be a balance where we take care of each other, but still have the ability to follow our dreams and succeed. A moral economy is saying that we have to have checks and balances in place so it's not obscene and that we're helping each other. That seems pretty basic, but for some reason it upsets a whole lot of people. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? When people get upset about about the discussion, it kind of blows my mind because if you take one away, one thing away from Jesus Christ's teachings, it is this very thing um, to take care of the poor, and it blows my mind because this just seems like such an it just seems like such a superficially obvious part of Christianity, but it seems to have been lost in the last 30, 40 years. And I don't know if that has to do with the greed that's come out as, um, the, you know, sort of the evangelical movement saw a lot of pastors that I think became involved not because their heart was devoted to any sort of um, the, uh, theoretical teachings, but because they wanted to make money and they would, you know, how many of them been jailed for fleecing their patronage because they, you know, just took money and spent it on houses and cars and all these things and made lies about what they were doing. So maybe that's sort of part and parcel. And it's good that we're getting back to some of these um, basic principles um, as far as that's concerned. You also mentioned a growing problem with food insecurity. I wanted to double back on that for a second because I think this is a huge problem. In fact, uh, I'm on my alumni board for UC Irvine and, um, we now have a food bank on campus for the students. That's how bad it is. Yeah, it's frightful. Here we are in 2018, and there's a food bank on our campus because the students are suffering from food insecurity after they pay for tuition and rent um, room and board. So, uh, and I know that this isn't isolated just to the student population. What are some of the solutions in that area that you've been looking at? Well, Unfortunately, the solutions that have been in place throughout America since FDR are, yeah. are being locked down. The that's elderly had like meals on wheels, but that's being yeah. cut. Um, and in fact, a lot of communities, I just happened to fund it somehow themselves. 
Uh, SNAP is always under attack. So we're denying children who had to live on maybe five, six dollars a day for meals. <sighs> now they're trying to slash that away when, when already I think it's one in four American school children are going hungry. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of people who are conquering this in their community. I've read a wonderful piece this week on civileats.org about um, a group of black churches that are putting in major gardening resources to redistribute healthy foods to their communities in, in an inner city where they can't get good, wholesome food. Meanwhile, at the federal level, we're also changing labeling laws and, and making it harder for people to have access to good, clean food and water, really. Um, so how do we fight that? Well, if we're not winning in a legislative sense, then we have to take it on as communities, and that's what people are doing really well. You've probably noticed throughout the country community gardening programs have flourished because people know we have to give people access to grow their own food. Um, because so much of the factory farming in this country doesn't worry about nutrition and right. doesn't actually get distributed to people in, in poverty ultimately anyhow because produce in the inner city or in the rural poor, unless they're growing their own, becomes a huge challenge. Um, mm -hmm. I think that any, this is uh, soapboxing, but any church that calls itself a Christian church needs to make feeding the poor a priority outreach program, uh, or else you're mislabeled in my humble opinion. Right. Um, you spoke earlier about these preachers who do prosperity gospel. They break in these billions of dollars and never redistribute to those in need. That mm -hmm. is not uh, a church-like action. And, and it's not just for Christians. I mean, uh, I've been talking to American Jewish leaders and Muslim leaders a lot this summer about their communities, and we all suffer from these extremists that identify with our faith that distort what most of us, the majority in yeah. our own faith, represent. And all of these different groups, the Muslims, the Jews, the Christians, and there's probably lots of religions I'm leaving, leaving out here, but are doing community outreach specifically on poverty and specifically on justice issues and, and bail funds. Um, and there's a lot of great work going on, but unfortunately they're not putting their efforts into having a cable TV show. So not everybody hears about this right. work. <laughs> exactly. We need our own cable station in addition to our own YouTube, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no joke. It's yeah, because it's you know, cable news now has gotten so bad. Not to <clears throat> not to change the subject, but I can't even watch MSNBC anymore. It's terrible. One of our early goals for Media Revolt before YouTube started kicking people off the channel is to utilize their infrastructure and bandwidth to take shows like Benjamin Dixon, Lee Camp, people, uh, Tim Black, who are doing a great job. Yourself, you've done some YouTube. Um, and put together a type of 24-hour stream of the shows that they're mm. already doing that people could access mm -hmm. on smart TV. Um, but then when people started getting booted off, and uh, I know some people just went to straight up podcasts, it didn't seem like it was something worth investing a lot of time in. But uh, 
it's still something in my the back burner of my head that we need to make a way that our information is more accessible to like my 86 year old grandmother who's only getting her information from CNN and Fox. Yeah, I agree. Um, we need something compatible. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned, yeah, because I, you know, I, I lost my YouTube channel. I got sort of caught up in that whole mess last year, I guess a year and a half ago now, you know, which in podcasting now to me is sort of the way YouTube used to be 10 years ago. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't change because then we really don't have any outlets. Um, or we just need to get, you're right, we need to get get it together somehow and create our own sort of response to all of this. Um, so this week we've seen, we've seen a lot of problems with ICE. So I wanted to talk with you about that. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm so disgusted, I can't even find the words right now, I'm so disgusted by this policy that anybody thinks is a good idea to separate small children from their parents. I, I just can't wrap my head around this. The Trump administration failed to meet a court-imposed deadline Tuesday to reunite all children under the age of five who were separated from their parents at the border. According to the government, just 38 children out of the 102 children under the age of five have been reunited with their parents. Attorney Lee Gallant of the American Civil Liberties Union criticized the Trump administration for missing the deadline. We are extremely disappointed that the government looks like they're not going to reunify all the eligible children today and that they have not even tracked down the removed parents. But we do think since the judge became involved in the compliance process as of this past Friday, things have taken a real step forward and there has been progress. We are hoping that that means from now on no deadline will be missed either for these under five or for any of the 2,000-plus going forward. Over 60 children under the age of five remain separated from their parents, as well as nearly 3,000 children over the age of five. On Tuesday, Judge Dana Sabra reiterated that all separated children must be reunited with their parents by July 26. He said, quote, these are firm deadlines. They are not aspirational goals. They told us, you are criminals. You will be imprisoned and your kids will be given up for adoption. They yelled at us so badly that our kids got scared. They told us to lay our kids on the floor. At midnight, they came to pick up the kids. There was a mom breastfeeding her baby, and one of the officers told her she wasn't an animal to be taking her breast out like that, and they took her baby. They cuffed her and chained her in front of the kids. What they've done is horrible. I have no information on my son. It's been more than 50 days since I last heard of him. I call and no one gives me any information. I can't even sleep. I wake up and my heart is beating so fast. I can't even breathe. They told me my son is somewhere in New York, but no one answers the phone when I call. There are so many mothers like me that have no idea where their kids are and that are still in the detention center. Never did I imagine it was going to be like this, that they would take our kids. 
our kids have no fault for the mistakes the adults make. It's very upsetting to me. Yet here we are. Um, but I'm also very angry that I feel very betrayed by Obama because this was a policy that he could have prevented. He, in 2014, he was detaining immigrant children in, in similar uh, facilities, facilities that looked like cages. And in fact, John Favreau mistakenly shared photos that were taken in 2014 of these, um, yeah, believing that they were done under Trump when they were actually done under Obama. So, you know, the Obama administration quickly responded saying that the difference was that they weren't separating children from their parents. Okay, which is fair. Yes, that's a big difference. But my beef is this. Why didn't you just shut it down? You campaigned on this idea, Obama, that you were going to overturn a lot of the Patriot, Patriot Act things that were going on. You weren't going to keep these things, um, continue them on. And not only did you continue them on, but you made them more ingrained in our government. So now this entire toxic football has been handed to a monster, and this monster is going full force with it. Judge Dolly G in Los Angeles dealt a major blow to the Trump administration's efforts to indefinitely jail migrant families, including asylum seekers. She ruled the Trump administration cannot amend the 1997 Flores Agreement, which says children cannot be jailed for more than 20 days. Uh, Barbara Hines, could you talk about the Flores, uh, uh, the Flores uh, uh, Agreement, what it is uh, and how it initially developed, and also the problems that occurred with it under the Obama administration, uh, as well now as w with the Trump administration? Um, yes. The Flores uh, settlement came out of litigation over the treatment of children in the 1980s into the 1990s. And it is a settlement that's been in effect since 1997, and it governs the treatment of children uh, if they're detained. But the most important thing in Florida is, is that the presumption is that children should not be detained, um, that they should be released as promptly as possible, generally within five days, if there's no uh, facility in the area, if there is, in 72 hours. Um, and that they should be reunited outside the community as quickly as possible. And the Obama administration violated the Flores Agreement, trying to keep parents and children detained for long periods of time, arguing the Flores uh, settlement, uh, just like the Trump administration, does not include accompanied children, that is, children that appear with their parents, that present themselves at the border with their parents. And Judge Gee now twice has resoundedly rejected both the um, arguments of the Obama administration and, once again, of the Trump administration, and has rejected the notion that children and their parents can be prolonged, indefinitely detained as uh, Trump is now um, claiming that he needs to do, or what he wants to do. The thing to remember is that this all started under George W. Bush. So these practices, and Democrats, remember, had a majority of Congress for the first part of the Obama presidency. So the lack of inaction by Democrats and the Obama administration uh, has led to increasing the ability for a fascist like Trump to come in and amplify these practices to the point that it is concentration camps for children. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I agree, Michael. And interestingly enough, Azar came out and actually used as this defense that I'm not buying for, not even for a hot second, that 
they were looking into the parents to make sure that the parents were criminals because they didn't want to return the children to criminal parents and that they might be murderers, like even use murderers, like rapists, like some of the same dialogue that we saw. Yeah, I know. I was listening to this going like, wow, really? <laughs> There's no excuse for what you did. And I, I doubt, doubt that, that these parents are murderers and that's what's preventing you from reuniting them. I don't buy it. Ah, so frustrating. Uh, so the other thing that was going on in regards to this is you did have a lot of the centrist establishment, them, say no, we don't want to abolish ICE. The idea that, of, that we should abolish ICE is a, wait for it, a Russian psyop. <laughs> I just can't understand. These are people that are supposed, these are folks that are supposed to be uh, on our side. They're supposed to be on the left. But these are the arguments that they're making. I don't understand this. So people get tired of us comparing what's happening now to late 20s, early 30s, not to Germany. But it is relevant because if you look, I just watched this great movie that's called Fanny's Journey, true story. In fact, the woman it's about is still alive. As a little girl, she helped, as France was being invaded by the Nazis, she helped about 20-some Jewish kids escape into Switzerland. Um, it's quite a dramatic story, but it's the same sort of thing. They rounded up the parents, then they went after the children, they were separated, and they were put into camps. Very similar to what Trump has amplified ICE into doing, um, because he's also targeting a certain type of person. In, in our That's right. instance, it's Hispanics, Latinos, Mexicans, but in his, it was the Jew, the disabled, the Catholic. Um, there are parallels to be made, and, and the fact that people just easily dismiss it as, well, Obama was doing it, so Trump's allowed to do it, without looking at a moral center. And this isn't just for people of faith, but all of us as, as Americans are supposed to have a moral center that people are treated with dignity, and we've abandoned that. And I think anybody who's been in traffic the last couple of years can attest to the fact that we've abandoned dignity towards each other. How do we reclaim mm-hmm. that is my question. Whether it's for kids in cages or people we pass on the streets, how do we become a better America? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, it's all kind of part and parcel. We are seeing an increase in this sort of neo-fascist ideology. Uh, also this week you had the uh, gal that was planning a birthday picnic for her child in the park when the drunk racist came up to her and started yelling at her because she had a, a flag or a t-shirt that had the flag from Puerto Rico on it. And he, You're not going to change us. You know that? I'm not trying to change anyone. No. I'm just trying to come here no. for a birthday party. You're not going to change the United States of America. Okay. Period. Okay. You should not be wearing that in the United States of America. Okay. Yes, I am a Are citizen. You a nice, nice citizen. Can you please get away from me? Then you should not be Can you please that. get away you from me? United States officer, America, officer, I feel Not highly uncomfortable. Can Are you, you please citizen? grab him? Are you an American um, citizen? Please, officer. I'm an American citizen. I would like to know. Is he an American citizen? Why is he wearing that s***? As you can see, the police are not even, he's not even grabbing him. Like he's, this guy's just walking up to me. He basically got in my face, damn near almost touched me.
this is what I'm wearing, guys. Are you really? This is what I'm wearing. Grant, and I'm thinking to myself, does this guy not know that Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricans are American? Are American. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was just, well, they, I don't know if you saw they, this, but it was unbelievable. Well, these Trump supporters don't know this. It's one of the reasons we didn't get aid to Puerto Rico in time. Um, oh, my God. Because they, they don't consider them real Americans, even though they have been for Decades. 1940s, yeah, decades now. Yeah. I mean, this is just so ignorant to me. So I was really appalled by that. I mean, it's bad enough that the guy's a racist. It just had this second layer of stupidity attached to it because he kept saying that she wasn't an American citizen. And I just, I, I, I mean, I think this stuff has been around. I, I just think it's more out in the open now because Trump has pretty much given license to these guys to just say what they think and not feel that they have any repercussions. And indeed, the police officer that was nearby that she kept asking for help, he just ignored the situation. He saw it going on, and he just stood there. So I know that oh, this sure. has been... Uh, did you Talk to your black, brown, and native friends, and they'll all tell you this is nothing new. It's just been right. uh, socially acceptable now that it's more out in the open. And, and we have recording devices in our pocket. Um, I, I don't think we brilliant. can give all the credit to the Trump movement i think these jerks have been around but now we can capture them and shame them which is appropriate mm -hmm. uh, more often and much more oh, i agree i agree and in fact i'm a big fan of dropping cell phones with cameras into areas that are experiencing any sort of humanitarian crisis give these guys phone cameras let them tape what's going on it's very eye-opening um to be able to to get, you know, that's one of the brilliant things about social media is we do get to see these videos, and, and you're never going to see this stuff on cable news. I'm not going to talk about it, or even local news, yeah. if there is any local news left. Uh, I noticed that during yeah. Ferguson, the coverage that you got off of people's cell phones being shared on social media was 100% different than what cable mm -hmm. news was covering. And I was in Denver at the time. There's a great program there that these nonprofits are on street corners near heavy homeless populations and are readily just giving them cell phones with with minutes and data so mm. they are protected um they have a mm -hmm. way to reach out if need be or to record if need be i think you're right that's that's something that I, as we progress in a technological society and this argument's been had with wi-fi in different communities we have to almost make a guarantee of access to internet and data right um, that's one of the arguments we could go on and on and on about with net neutrality as well but um yeah it is one of the few ways we can protect ourselves from injustice yeah i agree and i'm thankful that we have been working on a net neutrality bill here in california and it had been gutted but as activists we started a campaign and we were just ramming these guys with because the cable news, AT&T, Verizon, these folks all wanted to, you know, muck with the bill. Um, but now they're going back to the original language. They've removed any of the amendments that would have changed um, the actual flavor of the bill. So and it's a much stronger net neutrality bill than the, what they had federally previously. So this is this is a win. So every time somebody tells you that 
why am I doing this? It's not working. They're mistaken. Keep up the fight, folks, because activism does work. Keeping pressure on does work. They want you to believe it doesn't because they want you to get tired and say nothing. They want to go back to doing everything behind closed doors. State lawmaker who was attacked online for gutting a California net neutrality bill is now supporting a new push for even stronger protections. KPIX 5's Julie Watts has the details. And I want to publicly thank uh, Miguel Santiago. Today, they stood in unity, introducing a landmark net neutrality bill. Just two weeks after net neutrality advocates used Assemblyman Miguel Santiago's own Twitter feed against him, accusing Santiago of siding with the telecom industry and gutting Senator Scott Weiner's bill without letting him defend it. I'd like to vote on it now. But without, without having a hearing, Mr. Chairman? One second. We would still have a hearing. Well, but you're voting before... We're entitled to a hearing, Please. and you're voting Please. before the hearing even happens? How is that appropriate? 8 to 0, the motion passes. The activist group Credo posted excerpts from the hearing on Twitter. What uh, the committee just did was outrageous. Uh, the amendments that the committee just adopted eviscerate the bill. It's no longer a real net neutrality bill. Following a barrage of attacks on social media, some even targeting his wife and kids, Today, Santiago we stood in support of net neutrality and a resurrected bill. The strongest net neutrality bill in the nation. You may remember in December, the FCC repealed Obama-era net neutrality regulations. Critics worry internet providers like Comcast and Verizon could now charge tech giants like Netflix and Google to guarantee their services are seen in homes across the country while relegating the smaller websites that can't afford to pay to the proverbial internet slow lane, making people less likely to use their sites. The FCC commissioner insists consumers will be protected. We've empowered the Federal Trade Commission to take targeted action against any bad apple in the internet economy. Still, more than 20 states are suing the FCC for cutting the net neutrality rules. Now California is going one giant step further, introducing legislation that would essentially reinstate net neutrality rules in the Golden State. This is going to be a fight. The CTIA, which represents the wireless industry, tells us SB 822 is flawed and a consumer-unfriendly approach. While the California Cable and Telecommunications Association says it is unlawful, discriminatory, and unnecessary, adding state-level policies regulating the Internet are preempted by federal regulations. They fight hard, uh, they are effective, and we're confident that they are going to pose this strongly until the end. Now, companies generally don't create one set of rules for California and another for the rest of the country, so legislation here could ultimately lead to net neutrality nationwide. We should know in Washington, Democrats are pushing for federal legislation to reverse the FCC's rollback, but the Republican-led House has yet to bring that up for a vote. That could take some time. Yeah. Certainly yeah. could, and if, if frankly, ever. even if they got this legislation through mm -hmm. here, I suspect there will be some uh, legal battles to come, mm -hmm. so I don't oh, think right. that uh, simply passing legislation will be the end of it. You know, they are always going to try and beat us back into complacency. But uh, everything I'm reading about where your bill stands now is it would be the strongest protection for civil liberties on the internet that the United yeah. States has ever seen. Yeah. And you're right. I think it is absolutely much stronger than the previous federal bill that we had. So this is a, but so this is a huge win, and I'm very um, pleased that this happened. The other thing we have going on is. Uh, we have a bill, we finally got assigned a number, um, yes on 10, which would overturn Costa Hawkins in the state. Costa Hawkins was the bill that we had passed 
by Democrats, believe it or not, that um, took away local municipalities' ability to have rent control laws. So it's a huge contributor to why there's no affordable housing in the state. So hmm. we put a proposition on the ballot that will be on um, on the next election, and it will overturn Costa Hawkins, and I hope this passes too because this is another another big one would be, um, that would really affect – what's going on in the state. Uh, we've got, you know, we've got some of the worst income inequality out there, even though we're, you know, quote unquote, a blue state. We have a lot of neoliberalism here and it's, uh, we have a lot of wealthy folks that identify as being on the left, but they care more about their pocketbooks than it, they do the homelessness um, in downtown LA, you know, so, which is really upsetting to me because, and I know that you would understand this as a Christian socialist, this is not who we are as, as human beings, I would hope. I think that we can be and should be better than that. You're also a singer-songwriter, and I was listening to some of your music, um, but there was this great song that you devoted to um, to our progressive movement in 2016, and it had some great lyrics to it. Come down from the mountain And fight in the war With your brothers and sisters From all over the
And it seems to me, as I was listening to this song, it seems to me we hadn't experienced any sort of a political musical counterculture in the, in the country for a really long time. Like in the 60s, you obviously had, you know, Neil Young, you had this whole movement that happened. And then late 70s, early 80s, we had punk rock, you had the Den Kennedys, and all of these things were all sort of tied in with a counterculture and music. And we haven't had anything like that for a long time. And it seems to me that Right now, with all the political action that's come going going on, with uh, democratic socialism finally getting its day in, uh, in the sunlight, do you think we're due for uh, another uh, countercultural musical revolution? I had Sam Smith on the show the other day, and he was talking about his granddaughter, who's 14, has a peace symbol on the door, and he's like, where are all the new symbols? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think musically it's, it's happening. There's a guy on Meteor Volt who does uh, 30 to 60 second songs, uh, and most of them are very political. He posts often. Um, I, I've always been a longtime advocate of a lot of the songwriters who are recording music in February doing a political angle. Um, back in 2016, we did an entire album of songs I wrote with lots of different musicians pitching in, uh, all based around the ideas of the Bernie movement. Uh, we gave what proceeds it made to that campaign. Um, that's called solidarity as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the musicians are out there. However, like so many things in the category of media consolidation, the music industry is such a machine that independent artists don't break through very often. When they do, it's because they have achieved a couple million YouTube views or done something extraordinary to break through. But your common singer-songwriter, which would be your, your protest movement of the 60s and 70s, uh, I don't know that we'll ever see another Joni Mitchell or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young <laughs> come forward uh, yeah. in the current uh, music business because it would take so much for them to have to build an organic following themselves before mm-hmm. any sort of record label would put money behind them. They uh, want commercial music. They want stuff about sex and selling drugs. Yeah. So what was the difference then? Why why was the punk movement able to break through? I mean, they were talking about things that were clearly in their lyrics, clearly um, not supporting a corporate culture, but yet they were able to gain a following and build up steam and turn into a sort of a movement. And I, you know, I don't know why that's the case. I hear what you're saying because of the way the system is, is set up. It's rigged against that happening. But so it how- came to the clash, and you know, they took on the Reagan administration, Thatcher administration policies better than anybody. And what was their mm-hmm. success? They were started in small clubs. They sold out those clubs. They're playing bigger venues. Somebody had to give them a record deal. Um, okay. Now we're in a, a situation where lots of groups sell out clubs uh it's to get a record deal is is a whole nother thing and because of the way that people get cheated on those deals not everybody wants to 
to do it that way. They're comfortable doing mm. DIY, play your own shows, sell your own CDs, sell your own merch, make your own living. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a really strange thing the way that media consolidation really sticks it to the artist. It's not only yeah. on your television programming. You don't get diverse or controversial or edgy programming as much. You don't get news that's uh, actually news anymore. It's all entertainment. And for music, mm-hmm. it's very much a formula. I mean, if you go to Nashville and talk to songwriters, they are trying to do a specific formula to appeal to country radio. And the same thing is, is true with hip-hop recording. I mean, the best hip-hop you hear are mixtapes you buy on the street. And yes, it's annoying when the guy comes up to you and is trying to sell you a CD. Right. But nine times <laughs> out of ten, it's going to be the best CD that you have that week to listen to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True. But the commercial successes <laughs> are, are fitting into a, it's got to be this many beats per minute. It's got to have right, this length. Right, it's right. got to crescendo at this point in the song. It's a very exact formula to manipulate commercial viability, which isn't art. That's It's a whole separate thing. It is a whole separate thing. You're right. And we do see that across the board when it comes to anything in arts and entertainment at this point. I mean, you're right. Oh my God, there's no risk taking in filmmaking. There's because there's very few independents left. I mean, they've been either either put, been out of business or they were bought up by one of the larger studios, um, which is unfortunate. Harvey Weinstein's first crime. He, he crushed independent film into one half. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> ah. God, it's so frustrating. And, you know, part of the part and parcel of that, it has been digital and how disruptive it's been. And although digital has given everybody the ability to create and uh, the means of distributing your creation, it's impossible to get enough audience sometimes just to be heard. So it's, that's a whole other separate conversation. What are you working on now? So you haven't been writing on your blog lately. Are you working on any um, – pieces? Are you going to come back into writing in 2018 for the next election cycle? What are your plans? Well, I I kind of canned my podcast, even though we had great listenership. I, at one point after the election, came to this conclusion that we don't need more white guys over 30 giving their opinion on stuff. It's time to pass the microphone. <laughs> so in my, in my private life, I like to think I'm supporting a lot of other independent broadcasters and I'll write an article when they pop up. I, I am trying to write a book about my take on Christian socialism right now. Mm, uh, okay. That's kind of my mission for summer is to really get that in. Uh, sustaining media revolt is, uh, uh, is something I'm dedicated to. There is a rebirth, not just in um, Christianity, but also in the other Judaic religions. There's a rebirth of this sort of leftist, socialist-based um, religion. I know um, in um, Judaism, you have a Jewish voice for peace that's been out there trying to bring back the idea that, um, you know, they write for, they advocate for Palestinian rights in Israel, and which is obviously a hotbed, but, but their point is, is, is this is, we've gotten so far away from what Judaism is with what we're doing there. It's right-wing fascism, and it's not okay, and it's time that we really, it's, it's against the tenets of our religion. Why are we doing this? So those conversations are starting to happen across the board, and I think they're very healthy because yeah. everything shifted. Everything's just shifted so far to the right. It's not just, it wasn't just the Republican Party that shifted to the right. It was the Democratic Party. It was religious doctrine and this 
became sort of, and it was global in its nature. It wasn't just the United States. And I feel like there's been this awakening um, in the last couple of years. I mean, you couldn't even talk about socialism three or four years ago without just getting harpooned. Like, if you even said yeah. the word socialism, now we're winning the Yeah, you'd be ostracized, you know, instantaneously ostracized. So I think, um, which is, you know, it's been a very effective thing. The, the corporations, the corporate oligarchy, which is also global, has been very effective in weaponizing words weaponizing propaganda to um to get people to sort of go along with with what they wanted for so many years and i um i do see the differences i think the young millennials are um, they're not taking any bullshit from anybody if you if you try to snow job most millennials they're going to question you um so well, the only reason i've been able to hold on to any hope is how inspiring the young people out there in movement spaces are they, they really make me feel like yeah solely the bernie sanders campaign but i think he was a huge part of that i think he really spoke to um the things that they were dealing with that nobody else wanted to listen to you know baby boomers have turned out to be a very selfish generation they benefited from having public tuition for university now they say they don't want to pay for it and they've defunded it you know, you can go down the list of things that they benefited from that they've taken away from the millennials, and now their attitude towards the millennials is, well, just work harder than we did and you'll be fine, which is just so mind-numbing to me. I don't understand this. generation that benefited the most from the New Deal is now trying yeah. to undo the New Deal for future generations. It's yeah, the like, what the hell? Bit of I mean, it's amazing, and I and you talk to these folks, and you're just kind of baffled by the whole thing. I, I mean, that article about three weeks ago, there was an article that was posted uh, in Politico about how, and I think the headline was something to the effect of these millennials need to learn how to work as hard as we did and harder than their grandparents, or something to this effect. And you're like, really? <laughs> what they are. They've adapted to this gig economy. They're working, you know, potentially four or five jobs. That's right. And they're more politically active than really every group other than seniors. Um, And not just politically active, we're talking about the Jews. There's a giant rift between American Jews and Israeli Jews, mostly surrounding Trump, but mostly led by young Jewish folks. That's right. um, Yes. Who recognize that Israel is selling arms to neo Nazis throughout the former Soviet Republic. This is a disconnect for them. Challenge between American Jews and Israeli Jews on a lot of hardcore issues. That's led by young people praying, pardon the pun, that Christianity sees the same sort of uplift of of young Christians who have a moral fortitude and want to stand up to the system. But right now we are in an interesting part in the United that it's led by young people getting politically active for the first time, and old war horses, uh, like, I hate to say you, you know, I was going to say us, but like me. And yeah, no, I, I, I'm okay they, with it. Uh, they are, are trying to teach what we've learned from decades of activism to young people coming up, but, but more importantly, listen to them because they have a, a source of moral fortitude of what is right that sometimes yeah. we forget as we get older because we get beat down. And there's yeah. just something 
beautiful about idealism in its purest form. Young people have always had that, but this generation is exercising. Yes, it's energizing, and we let's be honest, we needed that energy. We've been fighting this fight. You know, I'm 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 approaching the big five zero um, in a couple years, and you know, yeah, you get beat down after many years of this. You're like, am I just putting pebbles in a dam that's never going to be dammed up? What am I doing here? So it was great. 2016 was great energy for that reason alone, and I I have not felt more committed to progressive causes in a long time because of these kids, because they are so um, engaged and so interested in changing the world that we're living in. And it makes you feel like we can do this, we can accomplish this. I mean, you know, the, the last couple of elections where we've been seeing Democratic Socialists win, is when, when their elections have been very uh, uplifting as well. So the change is coming. Um, so going into the 2018 um, cycle, we're, we're getting ready to start hearing from announcements from candidates who are going to throw their hat in the ring for to challenge Trump. Um, what would your ideal ticket be? Hmm. I'm not sure I, I have one at this point. Uh, something I, I, I think about a lot. I yeah. am inclined to say that I would support Bernie again, even yeah. though I feel that the failures of his campaign of building a movement in certain communities is not going to be healed in time, and the outreach has not been done to heal it in time to make a difference. Okay. I don't believe that the Democratic Party's performs have been severe enough to allow an outsider like him rise to the top. So who does that put mm -hmm. from the left that they would amplify? I guess that's Liz Warren. If you'd asked mm -hmm. me four years ago, I would have been all about being behind her, volunteering, knocking on doors, not sure I'm there. Um, I love it when people talk about a Bernie Nina or a type ticket. Um, right. But I, I don't feel realistic about it anymore or as hopeful as I once did. I personally will support the most leftist candidate that I can support. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I do not think that I could ever support a Clinton-type figure, a Kamala Harris-type figure. Uh, Cory Booker figures these people who are, are just center-right enough to be dangerous as well. I don't know that mm -hmm. replacing a fascist with a globalist is going to put us in any better footing as the American mm -hmm. community. Um, but I, I know I'll give every extra dollar and every extra minute to whomever I can support that most matches with my ideal. To, to me, morally... Selecting the lesser of two evils is always supporting evil, and I, I can never go yeah. that route personally. I would never discourage anyone else to vote their hearts and minds the way they feel appropriate, but for me, I, I can't go that route. Um, hopefully, we'll see a new voice rise, though, that, uh, like, like we just saw in New York. Um, and yeah. We're seeing currently that Cynthia Nixon. Miles protest. Over there? Algebra. Yeah. New York is my home. How are you doing? Okay. I've never lived anywhere else. When I grew up here, it was just my mom and me in a one-bedroom, fifth-floor walk-up. <laughs> New York is where I was raised and where I'm raising my kids. I'm a proud public school graduate and a prouder public school parent. 
I was given chances I just don't see for most of New York's kids today. Our leaders are letting us down. We are now the most unequal state in the entire country, with both incredible wealth and extreme poverty. Half the kids in our upstate cities live below the poverty line. How did we let this happen? I love New York. I've never wanted to live anywhere else, but something has to change. We want our government to work again on healthcare, ending mass incarceration, fixing our broken subway. We are sick of politicians who care more about headlines and power than they do about us. It can't just be business as usual anymore. If we're going to get at the root problem of inequity, we have to turn the system upside down. We have to go out ourselves and seize it. This is a time to stick our necks out, to remember where we came from. This is a time to be visible. This is a time to fight. I'm Cynthia Nixon. I'm a New Yorker. And together, we can win this fight. Yeah. And I was so happy this week that she called herself a Democratic Socialist. That's so um, great. That was so great. I, I, I like to think that we still have time that, that there'll be a new shining light, um, and, and I'm really hoping for that. Yeah, no, you know, I was thinking that the other day as well. Um, there might be somebody coming out in the next year or so that we just don't know about yet that could, you know, I mean, in the same way that Obama sort of captured people out of nowhere, so to speak, um, you know, he had he was a junior senator. He hadn't had that much time in politics, but um, I would still um, I would still totally support Bernie, though, 100 um, percent if he threw his hat in the ring. I'm yeah, I agree with you on the Elizabeth Warren. She does a lot of good stuff. I support a lot of the things that she does, but she's kind of done a, a, some other things where I'm like, Ugh, Elizabeth. It's really aligned with the centrists in a way that I'm not super comfortable with anymore. Exactly. Why I hiccup with Bernie now is, you know, in 2016, he was awfully quick to not stand up to what the Clintons had done in rigging the primaries and, and just fall in line. And I don't think that benefited the country at all. Yeah, I was pretty angry. I was pretty angry about that. I, I hear that beef. I was really mad. I really wanted him to just walk out of the Wells Fargo Center and flip them all off. But having said that, my understanding of the situation is that he made the deal because it was what allowed him to reform the Unity and Reform com- uh, Committee to change all of these rules. That was part of the deal. It was that the DNC agreed to create that. Yesterday, they did come out on and um, stopping the superdelegates from voting in the first round, and they can only vote now in a contested. It obviously has to be voted on still by the DNC, the entire DNC, but that did pass through. So we did get we get we got a few things done, not enough, obviously. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, God, you know, I just want it. Just seems to me, uh, Michael, it seems to me that the process of undoing the damage is so much harder than just than just having allowed this, us to get to this point to begin with. <laughs> oh, you know what I'm exactly if the millennials don't lead us forward, it's only because of how the system was corrupted by the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. That it's 
so hard to actually change. I mean, we are in such a stronghold of duopoly. You, to mm-hmm. be able to vote for Cynthia Nixon for governor in New York State, you had to be a registered Democrat nearly a year ahead of time. That, which and is that, so crazy. That alienates voters, and especially young voters. Um, the process throughout our political system is rigged to keep these two political parties with a clutch on the power structure. And mm-hmm. I don't believe that that was ever intended for, for our nation, but it's where we are. And without some serious yeah. legislative changes, and, and on the local levels, especially uh, challenging election commissioners that are the holding political parties, we probably won't see the sort of change that will allow the floodgates to open for a real revolution to happen in a peaceful political mean. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree with that. Um, I, the whole New York one-year thing just baffles me. That's just shocking that that still hasn't been corrected. I think in California, we are fortunate enough here, although you know, I see them trying to change this. I, you know, if you watched our last primary election cycle, they kept calling it the jungle primary, which drove me up the damn wall. It's like, no, this is not a jungle primary primary this is what democracy looks like <laughs> stop yeah. it you know like they were trying to get, scare everybody into thinking like well because there's a semi-open primary it might be the case that uh you end up with two republic republicans but what what blows my mind is most of the time and i can't think of a single time where there has been two republicans most of the time it's two democrats that end up in the general election so, but this is these are the parties trying to hold on to their power. They want to they want to revert our system back to what it once was, because they could control it better. And a corporate controlled media who benefits from the power structure remaining as is wants to spin a narrative to make it look bad, so mm-hmm. they don't get any real change. That's right. So we're not going to let that happen here. We're gonna we're gonna. You know, that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. People are too mad. So I would, I would like to even have a completely open primary system everywhere. I just think it's more democratic, and I, and it amazes me how fearful um, people can be of that. When you have open democracy in this way, and you vote for the best person, you end up with better candidates. Period. Well, the point in 2016 showed that, that Bernie would have crushed in the general, but because oh, yeah. of the way the primaries were put together, he couldn't get an edge in, but he would have done That's right. He pulled better than Clinton did against whoever the Republican challenge is, especially Trump. So mm-hmm. that open ability to vote for whoever you want, like you can in the general election for president, is a great model where you actually get people voting for candidates they want rather than the hand-selected pockets that political parties try to deliver yeah, exactly. And, you know, here in uh, District 34, in our last primary, we ended up with having a Democrat and a Green Party person in the general. So there isn't even a Republican at all in our district. And, you know, that's not going to happen under where, where are you going to see a Green Party independent guy ever have an equal say in a general election? I mean, he could write, you can have the Democrat, the Republican, like each party runs their own person. But when you get to a runoff where there's, you know, six candidates and they're all going to pull towards, you know, the Democrat or the Republican because they don't want to, it's that whole lesser evil thing, I can't waste my vote sort of mentality that they browbeaten people with. Well, now we're in a general election where we've got 
two candidates. One's a Democrat, one's a Green Party guy. And the Green Party guy, um, but this is what happens when you have a semi-open primary. It's not, this isn't a jungle. This is democracy. (laughs) It's another of the things that actually gives me a great deal of hope is when you poll Americans on the issues, a majority of us agree, and they agree towards the type of agenda that a democratic socialist or a true leftist or a green would put forward. So if they're Mm -hmm. given the opportunity to have the microphone or have the stage and present these concepts that the American people agree on, but never hear from a two-party politician, then people will rally behind that because we do want a better America, a more just America, a more equal America. We do want to put an end to the type of police state and poverty state that we've been forced into that Mm -hmm. has not gotten better since the riots of 68. We've just become more complacent. We need a remote, we need a TV network, we need a <laughs> megaphone. We need a TV network. We need a megaphone. We need a megaphone. So let me ask you this, uh, because I'm not sure how the New York system works. If, in order to remove this one-year thing that they have that's just completely archaic and ridiculous, how difficult is that to do? So in New York State, and I think a lot of states, the primary is actually controlled by the party. So... The Democratic Party being its own independence, not federal agency, but a, basically a private club, which to dictate mm-hmm. their own rules. So to make a change like that, basically activists have to get involved in the party and their local chapters of the Democratic Party and statewide enough have to rise into influence to change these type of bylaws. Um, mm. It's incredibly tricky, incredibly difficult. Um, and especially in a state like many where the election commissioners are yes-men to party chairs, and it's, it's very uh, homogenized, one, one type of thought. Yeah, it seems that way. Um, I just, God, it just, it just drives me nuts when the parties do this sort of thing, because, and especially when the Democrats do, because they're supposed to be the party that's against voter suppression and for expanding voter rights, but then they do these sorts of things. It's like, ugh. God, you're so hypocritical. This is crazy. Interestingly enough, I feel like on the left, there's this sort of um, meeting place for for the genre stuff like comic books, uh, sci-fi, horror, and leftist politics. It's a lot of the same group, I've noticed. The ideals expressed yeah, by our heroes in sci-fi, fantasy, and comic books are democratic socialist ideals. They're Christian Judaic ideals. They're ideals of taking care of each other and being a hero and standing up for the Don Quadden. Uh, you know, Captain <laughs> America never invites a Nazi to tea. He punches them. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, Wonder I Woman know. doesn't let's talk about her feelings with Nazis. She puts them in the no. nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, she just punches them. Yeah, I was trying to figure out, like, there's got to be some way to create some sort of art stuff that would work effectively work combining like a superhero idea with like leftist I don't know I was rattling in my brain the other day and I was thinking God, anyway. when you have a moment of sobriety next week pick up the uh, Danny O'Neill uh, on forgetting Adam's collaboration from the late 70s early 80s where they team up Green Arrow and Green oh, Lantern yeah. Green okay. Lantern's a Republican Green Arrow's a Democrat and they mostly without costume that. tour tour the states and look into issues like drugs, poverty, social justice issues, and debate them constantly. It, it's fantastic, and especially since Ollie the liberal mostly wins. Yeah. 
<laughs> Oliver Queen. Yeah. Oh my God. So I did not know that. How did I not know this? That's really interesting. So you- I'll need the Unidac merger finalized by the end of the week. We're on something of a clock here. So, Michael, if um, if people want to follow you, where's the best place on Twitter, your website? What, what, give me all your um, social media contacts so if folks want to look you up, they can connect with you. Uh, the most public outpouring I do probably is on Twitter, and just it's my name at Michael Salomon. Um, so I, I also block ferociously uh, <laughs> yeah. it is my state mm-hmm. um, I do post on media there's something I think is worth sharing and I haven't really utilized my website which is com much this year because most of the things I'm working on are more behind the scenes but as soon as I have something that is uh, worth promoting that's usually the first place I put it Great, and make sure, folks, make sure you all get on Media Revolt and sign up and follow us. We'll follow you back. Um, spread the word because we really need to grow this platform out in time to organize for 2018 and 2020.